1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Minerva's Hammock Hiccup Handler. Drink a glass of water from the opposite side. Scare you silly. Breathe into a paper bag. Head between your knees. Bite a lemon. Pinch your nose and drink a glass of water. Hold your breath while spinning in a circle? We couldn't figure out which one, so we picked them all! Just lie back in the Minerva's Hammock Hiccup Handler to receive your healing. By assaulting the sorry sufferer with an onslaught of 25 hiccup solutions attacking you all at once, one of them is sure to do the trick. If anything, Minerva's Hammock Hiccup Handler will confuse our snake brain so badly, your hiccups will be a thing of the past. Minerva's Hammock Hiccup Handler, save your regrets for tomorrow. How much of our fear is instructed by the ancient primal lessons from our bestial existence? Chased into the nook of some fallen great oak, scratches around the edge as the long snout of some carnivorous predator seeks to end our days with the vicious application of sharpened jowls and hooked claws. are we so blunderous in our need for temporary safety, knowing peril paces just out of view as it wears a path in the dust, waiting for us to emerge? And we wait... Hoping for some great meteor to wipe out all the danger and leave a world covered in snowfall and void of that rancid shrieking that once filled it. Oh, how we long for quiet until there is simply too much of it. Attacked by a demolition team, the walls of the Sotto Voce scream, audible only to the curio, Maisie Myers. One of four children lost in the house under thick sheets of rain and thunder, trapped in the basement after being chased through the kitchen by some old fiend that they'd interrupted his broken violin rehearsal. Enoch Green, the runaway boy, was somewhere in the house. But the three girls, Temperance, Antigone, and Maisie, were calming in the temporary safety of the dark stairwell, lit only by matchlight. Temperance and Antigone couldn't hear the house scream, but helped Maisie limp along to compensate for her vertigo. Temperance walked down the steps holding a lit match. She bumped into a candelabra, almost knocking it over. She lit the candles. It was a cold basement, partially finished and walled in with bookshelves, littered with books, papers, and stacks of sheet Music. Books of all kinds stacked around the floor, left open to pages and left in piles. A few more candles around the room. Temperance lit them, and they cast light on the rest. In the center, a writing desk, and next to it on the floor, several cloth sheets covering a straw-stuffed mattress. There were no windows of any kind, and much like the other rooms of the house, no noise bleeding in from anywhere else. At most, some faint sounds from the top of the stairs. Not much style sleeping on the floor, Hepburn said. Can I make my room like this? Antigone asked. Hepburn's already shaking her head now. Is that door going to hold? Maisie asked. I wedged the key in a lock from our side. Learned that when my sister used to chase me, that time I stole her pearl hairbrush. It's a thick door. Strong lock. I think they need a battering ram to get through it. We're safe for now. Temperance kicked a dry inkwell with her foot. I noticed many quills sharpened to nubs. Several snapped in a pile on the desk. Tig, set Maisie on the bed. And don't go far. Maisie was still experiencing vertigo. She sat on the bed. She lied down on the mattress and closed her eyes to stop the room from spinning. The screams of the walls continued. But Maisie, not in actual contact with them, they were distant. Their stomach spun while Temperance and Antigone explored the underground library. Keep your eyes peeled for anything to poke that bloated sack with, a sword, a fire poker, or even a stick with a nail through it, Temperance said. The heavy rain continued outside. The scuffling footsteps and the sniffs at the door eventually went away. The basement cellar library was chilly and smelled of damp. The golden light from the melted white candles around the room provided mild warmth. Maisie pulled her coat around her and closed her eyes, trying to steady herself from the sick. She could hear Antigone looking through books, trying to find anything exciting engravings or illustrations. Temperance was pulling on boards, trying to see if she could loose a sharp one or her fencing skills to use. Maisie felt a warmth spread through her back welcoming her into the mattress as it folded around her. As the panic calmed, she let her fatigue show. She gave a deep sigh. From far away, a repeated sound, as if from deep within the ground. A thumping. It grew louder and louder. She could feel it through the floor Through the mattress, something pushed into her back with each shove. The thumping grew louder and heavier. Something was pushing on her through the floor, bursting through the cloth, as if two great hands pressed into her back, almost raising her off the mattress. She called out for temperance, but she couldn't talk. Temperance and Antigone oblivious. Maisie couldn't lift off the bed, the sheets wrapped around her arms and legs, entangling her the warmth increasing until it became too hot. Maisie struggled. Temperance looked back at her on the bed and grinned. Maisie tried to scream, but the sheep piled into her mouth, filling her throat, choking her. Maisie startled awake and just covered her mouth to muffle a cry for help. She sat on the edge of the bed, breathing rapidly, a hand over her chest, trying to calm her heartbeat. Temperance turned. You well, Maisie? I think you fell asleep for a moment. No need for a nightmare, of course. I hate to inform you that we are still in one. Antigone sat next to Maisie on the bed, smoothed her hair, and then rested her head on her shoulder. I didn't realize I had dozed off. I had a nightmare that something was buried under the mattress. It was pushing up from the floor, pressing on me from under there. Maisie could still feel its sick heat press into her back as she rubbed her neck. She stood up, troubled by the visceral feeling of the dream. "'Give me a hand,' Maisie said, as she grabbed the mattress, and the three of them slid it out of the way. The three moved the mattress out of the way, and it was sitting atop a sheet which they gathered and folded. Under the bed, some time ago, evidence the floor had been chopped through and a hole dug deep. Wild swings and axe marks around the edge, making a jagged portal. Three wooden planks partially covered a hole, no telling how deep. The planks were well-oiled, a deep black, and across the central plank, gilded paint lettering scratched and faded from time with the epithet, the Sado Voce. Fantastic, Temperance said. "'How about we pretend we didn't see this, and I'll just slide the mattress back?' "'What if it's treasure?' Antigone asked. "'Can we just be our better selves this time? "'Can we find Enoch and not uncover the creepy hole where the nightmare lives?' Temperance said. "'I don't know, Renny. "'You're the one that lives on the lane with the screaming house,' Daisy replied." So we have to complete the experience? Perhaps we are some kind of agents for its artifice, lured into its depths to free it from its suffering? Ember said. What if it's a puppy or a puppy treasure? Antigone got excited. Or worst case, we just uncover the creepy hole where the nightmare lives. Maisie gestured to the hole. I'm remembering why I dislike you, Ember said. balmy night in the harbor two men drank the remnants of a short slobbery bottle of cheap brandy the last ships unloaded into the warehouses by the harbor men and off to the shanty pubs for a full night of drinking the water was an obsidian glass reflecting the dots of stars like a dark mirror the chime of the quiet echo of the harbor bell repeated over the flicker of dim green lights at the end of the pier in this quiet, a phantom galleon slipped in out of the dark and slowly drifted towards the city. Its hull matching the darkness, a flat pitch wood and dingy gray sails left loose and draping down the mainmast. Its anchor hoisted, it drifted vacantly into the harbor and quietly nosed into the pier. So dark was the ship and so still was the night. The three inebriated men jumped with fright as it wedged into the dock in front of them. They jumped up and whooped, scattering behind cargo crates and netting for cover. They waited for some secret raid or more story to overtake them. After some time, they called into the silence. Oh. But no calls in return, no sounds of shuffling on the deck, no ropes or pulleys or gathering sails, no excited chatter about dice games or dock silence. Drunk men so spooked, we raised enough of a commotion that a crowd streamed out of the shanty pubs to have a look and figure out the nature of the mystery ship. After a time, some brave spirits boarded the ship. There were no signs of life aboard. No captain, no crew, no shipcap. No rats, no cargo, no rations, no supplies or kit. The only marker of any kind and name painted on the side in gilded letters of a single plane. The Sodom ship was worn as if it had seen violent waves on storms of high seas, and some nameless crew had worn down footpaths and marked notches into the railings. They found no journals, no logs, or maps. And upon further inspection, almost as if in secret, left behind on the quarterdeck, carefully carved into the wood, was a riddle. Born of strain, the wind blows my cat's paw. I can catch a fall and soothe billowy pleats to stillness. What am I? Riddle unsolved, the mystery ship anchored in the harbor, the harbor master and Needle Street went to work to find anything they could about the ship known as the Sato Boche. The rumor spread of the haunted ship, and the city came out to be glimpses for themselves. Wild stories were submitted to the lantern and printed if only to entertain the public in June's slow season. And then, from deepest desires, as if answered by Moira, the heart of a man called to an a yearning desire that once heard birthed the ship from the deep. Whether by coincidence or inspiration, the struggling maestro Domenico Fontana was one of these curious tourists, who gazed upon the ship for a nickel, and entranced at first gaze heard the notes of the music in his head as a light gust made its way through the near-shredded canvas of its great sails. Fontana used the last of his funds, his energy, and his guile to convince the harbor master to let him embrace the lost ship and use it to stage an opera of his own design. So rejected from the Palace Theater, the only stage for a serious opera, and married with a young son on the way, the maestro had to seize inspiration where he could find it. And this, this whisper would be the call of death in his requiem. He moved his belongings onto the ship, and in its quarters he penned the opera Mare Nostrum, the Ghost Ship Opera. The ship was turned, and the Sato Voce fitted with an enormous pipe organ in its stern gallery. Its sails repaired and tied, and the ship anchored away from the pier in the center of the harbor. More ships were floated alongside as moving stages for performers to flank the main stage. The pier roped off into sections with installed seating and wandering concessions. People from the city gathered on the dock and floated their own ships into the harbor to witness the offer. Floating platforms anchored with bonfires and kerosene lamps to cast colors across the water and the ships. And on a clear, balmy night, identical to the one the ship arrived, the Sado Voce staged the Mare Nostrum, a eulogy to all that gave their lives to the sea both through labor and finality. The Sado Voce grave marker, a tomb for all those lost in the mystery of the deep to never be heard from again. The pipe organ groaning loud bleeds across the water, performers singing to each other from sail sheets and cruise nests. A crew set out for the exploration. A poison of madness set over the ship out into the unknown from a song that was. Escape them, and with madness, they expired either to stop the sound and jump into the sea, or by taking each other, one by one, as a conspiracy of music. And then, empty, the captain swung from the mainsail until the waves took him, and the ships drifted into the harbor, where the captain's lost love waited for his return. It was a sensation. And for Fontana, the opera changed him. Lost in it, came out a different man. Something glorious and satisfied, but possessed and craven. The opera set the maestro's reputation, and with the money he received at the conclusion of the performance, he had the ship deconstructed and used the planks and boards and even some of the sails to construct the first mansion on the new land overlooking Parvin Pond of Lanula Park. The opera was restaged at the palace for an ultimate vindication and extended run, with the ship and the pipe organ fitted to the stage, and it was the first of many operas he performed He became the resident maestro of the palace theater. The maestro moved his wife and child into the house, and he had two more, and the park and other mansions were built up around the house birthed from the sea and constructed from an opera. And then one day, sometime after, his wife ran away. And shortly after that, the maestro himself vanished, and he left the children like feral cats in the house to eat each other. So in the depths of that house that was once a ship, we girls sat on a bed next to a writing desk in a basement library filled with sheet music, having removed planks under a bed and under them as if out of a dark dream, a deep hole, and lifted from that hole a creepy music ball. They just dug out of the floor. There was no crank, and they opened the lid. Inside the delicate box was a small round of glass, and in the glass small, perfectly petrified heart. Temperance wasn't impressed. Well, that's even more vile than I could have imagined. Is that an animal heart or something? How does it work? Maisie removed her gloves and took up the box and held it, looked for a mechanism. The box warmed to the touch. Without warning began to play. I like it, Maisie said. Moody. Can I hold it? Antigone asked. She took the music box. The playing abruptly stopped. And then started again. This time, a new song. How'd you do that? Hembrance asked her. I didn't. I think it plays something different depending on who's holding it. Let me see that, Hembrance said. She took the box from Antigone, and it began to play a new song. What song is this? What is it? It's perfect, is what it is, Daisy said. While Temperance was holding the box, Maisie noticed she was wearing a small silver bracelet with several bell charms, a bracelet she didn't have when they came in. Rennie, would you get that bracelet? Temperance held it to the candlelight, admired it. I found it while you were sleeping. You can't just take anything. I like it. Rennie, we're not here to pillage. We're here for Enoch. Temperance turned towards her and lowered her gaze. Fanny gets all the attention and gets away with everything. I like this, and I'm taking it. If I have to get chased by some screeching freak and sit in this damp, cold basement, I'm taking it. Renny. They didn't even notice I was gone, Maisie. Days in that Ludlow pit, and my family didn't even notice I was missing. If I tell them what happened, I have to expose that they didn't notice I was gone. And then I get to hear excuses how it was my fault for some reason. And I'm not gonna do that. And you dragged me here to chase after that weird boy. And so I like this and I'm taking it. Scream if you want to, Maisie. Not that there are any windows down here. Not that anyone can hear you. Tell the world that Temperance Fulcrum pilfered this silly bracelet because she likes it. Or you can take your spooky music box, and I will take my Tarcao bracelet, and we can both shut up about it. I don't want the music box. Maisie covered her ears. A muddy finger tapped on the window of the old carriage out in the rain. The foreman talked with the landlords through their window. Progress slowed. The men were able to move a fair amount of earth and mud around the house, but any effort against the boards and the windows themselves had been ineffective. Possibly treated with some special coverings, the windows didn't shatter. The cuts into the boards and beams were superficial at best. Strong wood, reinforced with good construction, he said. The foreman had never seen anything like it. The landlord's frustration apparent on their faces. They simply nodded at the second truck with a heavy rain cover on the back. And removed the lines and ripped the canvas off the trucks. The landlords had called for the machines. Industrial wrecker machines chained to the bed of the truck with gnarly teeth and tracks. The machines were crank started, belching smoke into the sky, driven off the back, and tore up the muddy lawn to drill and bash into the house. Maisie grabbed her ears and fell, smacking her head on the floor and blooding her nose. Temperance knew their time was running out. "'We have to get out of here. "'Tig, look after Maisie. "'Stuff some of that sheet in her ears. "'I'll see if it's safe to proceed.' "'Temperance took a candle out of the candelabra and crept up the stairs. "'I can hear something. "'There's a, there's a bunch of scurrying. "'I see light.' Maisie and Antigone ignored temperance and joined her up the stairs. The three crouched together at the gap under the door to see several slippered feet scurrying around the kitchen. The light of a fire flickered, and pots moved in commotion. Maisie noticed that Antigone was holding the music box. Tig, you can't bring the music box. But I like it. Maybe if it'll play, it'll calm them down. Maisie threw her hands up. Temperance unjammed the lock and turned the key, slowly opened the door and peered through the crack and saw not one, but three similar creatures, each in rotted coats and tails, standing in the dark kitchen, peering into the glow of a large, boiling pot on the iron stove. Do we not all drift on the savage seas, into the safe harbors of the nursing mother of the city? And do our haunted past not follow us like the deep creep of an opera pipe organ in the thick mist? Did the wood knock spirits of the Sato Voce stow away into the beams of the park Row mansion? Or did the mad venom seep from its walls and the notes of the music of the maestro would infect his family? Whose petrified heart sits in the center of the delicate music box, unearthed from deep within a nightmare from our curio maze-y. As temperance creeps up the stairs, what's cooking in the kitchen? Uncover the riddle of the Sato Voce and unlock the many secrets of the dark house. On the next episode of Celine.